On November 19th, 2018, I unveiled the cover art for season two, and I explained that the girl in the photo was Doreen Vincent, that she was 12 years old, and that this would be a local case out of Wallingford, Connecticut. On December 3rd, I received an email from a reporter at the Record Journal newspaper in Meriden. Meriden and Wallingford are neighboring towns. Her name was Lauren Tacoris, and she was interested in doing a preview of the new season, considering Doreen's case took place in their coverage area. So I said yes, of course. A few days later, I went into the Record Journal, and I'll have that for you in just a moment. I got to be a guest on their daily podcast that morning, and after it had finished, Lauren shared with me a folder of old clippings, articles that were published about Doreen in the Record Journal shortly after her disappearance into the mid-90s. Those articles are what I'll be sharing in this episode, because it is very important in any story to pay attention to how those first reports paint the picture of what was going on. It's always those initial reports that then become reverberated throughout more media reports. And then as the internet comes along, they reverberate even further onto various websites, message boards like Reddit, for example, and certainly onto the many online missing persons databases. So we're going to start from the beginning, more than 30 years ago. This is episode two, season two of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. Over here? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a photographer. Okay. So that'll be easiest for them. I'm Mike Savino. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi. Sarah, what's your last name? Dimio. Dimio. Okay. Dimio. Okay. Um, okay. Are you ready, Sarah? Yep. Lauren, you ready? So we are now joined by staff writer Lauren Zacoras. Hi. And also uh, Sarah Dimio. She's a producer of a podcast called Faded Out. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Oh, and thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. So uh, Sarah's podcast takes a look at uh, missing person cases around the country. Uh, so we're having her in today uh, because Sarah, who's uh, from Bristol, uh, is actually taking a look at a case uh, a little closer to home for her second season, uh, and that's the Doreen Vincent case out of, out of Wallingford. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, I guess just to start things off, tell us a little bit about uh, Doreen uh, who's been missing since 1988, and, and how this uh, got your attention. Well, yeah, I was looking up cases to follow um, because I wanted to do a case that was in Connecticut that was local because the first season I did a case out of Iowa. So I was trying to research local cases, and I went onto a website that I look at frequently called the Doe Network. It's doenetwork.org, and it has listings of Um, a lot of missing persons cold cases. So I was looking through some of the listings for Connecticut and I started looking at females, um, like young girls, like, because I wanted to focus on like children who had been missing. And so I found a case of Doreen Vincent who disappeared in June of 1988. And 
her story stuck out to me a little bit compared to the other ones. What did you learn through the process of producing the first podcast that you'll apply this time around? I think definitely one thing that I've learned is not to immediately take everybody at face value. Um, and that's not to say to not trust anybody. It's just to sort of say that um, people have different versions of what they think happened in these cases. And so it's very important to not just um, go with the first thing that you're being told. And, you know, even when people are, are on the same side, like even you can be like, you know, everybody's on the side of good, but everybody has a different idea or different memories of something that happened. So it's very important to just sort of take a step back, don't take everything at face value all at once. And that was something I definitely had to learn as I went with the first season. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. So. Oh, I've never seen that picture in color before. Yeah, there it is. The earliest article that Lauren gave me is dated June 28th, 1988, 13 days after Doreen disappeared. It was written by Ralph Tomaselli, who is now the editor-in-chief at the Record Journal. The headline reads, Police Seek Leads in Girls' Disappearance. Wallingford. 12-year-old Doreen Vincent just could not get used to the cornfields and barns that surround her new Whirlwind Hill Road home, said her stepmother Sharon Vincent. Instead, Doreen, who had lived in Bridgeport and Waterbury for most of her life and had moved to rural East Wallingford earlier this month, preferred the hustle and bustle of the city. She liked having people living nearby, like her friends, Sharon Vincent said Monday. And she enjoyed the activity of the city. Here in Wallingford, she felt like she was in the middle of nowhere. Doreen's parents and the police think she may have headed back to the bright lights of the city when she left home 13 days ago. The Wallingford Police Department considered Doreen a missing person, police spokesman Thomas J. Curran said Monday. Police think she has run away and although they have no reason to suspect foul play, nothing has been ruled out, Curran said. Doreen, who is 5 feet 4 inches tall, with brunette hair and hazel eyes, and weighs about 110 pounds, snuck out snuck out is in quotes, of her house between 8.30 p.m. and 9 p.m. on June 15th and has not been heard from since, Sharon Vincent said. Doreen, who lived with Sharon Vincent and her natural father, Mark Vincent, left with about $50. Before she left, Doreen, who will turn 13 in September, complained about how secluded her new home was and how much she missed her friends, most of whom live in the Bridgeport, Norwalk area, according to Sharon Vincent. Looking back on it now, I realize she was anxious to leave, Sharon Vincent said in a telephone interview. I didn't think so then, but now I do. She had no friends here, and she was just bored. Since Doreen was reported missing June 15th, the Wallingford Police Department has checked bus and train stations and contacted Doreen's relatives and friends in the Bridgeport-Norwalk area. However, police have failed to locate Doreen or someone who has heard from her, Curran said. Police here have enlisted help of the Connecticut State Police Missing Persons Unit, other local police departments, and have entered Doreen's picture and description into a national law enforcement computer network that lists missing persons, Curran said. Curran admitted the police have just about run out of leads and are now turning to the media and public for help. 
We are releasing her picture and description to the press, hanging up posters here and around the state, Curran said. If anyone has seen her, even if it has been in the company of an adult, we are asking them to call us. Anyone with any information concerning Doreen's disappearance should call the Wallingford Police Department, Curran said. What worries police in this case is not only the length of time Doreen has been missing, but her age, Curran said. Her vulnerability is great, Curran said. She looks older than she is, and just the fact that you have a young girl out there on her own speaks for itself as far as the type of danger she could encounter. The Vincents have tried not to think about the bad things that may have happened to Doreen. We are trying to avoid thinking that someone may have taken her or that she is somewhere against her will, Sharon Vincent said. But it is hard not to. According to State Police Sergeant Paul Scannell, commander of the State Police Missing Persons Unit, more than 300 Connecticut children are reported missing every month. Most are found in a matter of hours or days, Scannell said. Scannell said most children who run away are at least 13 years old. Authorities become increasingly concerned when any child is gone for more than a day or two, he said. If they haven't gone to a friend's house and are just on the streets, they really have no way to earn any money, Scannell said. They run into street people who sometimes sexually abuse them or get them involved in dealing drugs. Runaways can also become involved in prostitution and pornography, Scannell said. Most Connecticut runaways head for cities within the state, he said. We are not finding that most of them are going to New York City like everyone assumes, Scannell said. Most pick a city here in the state, but during the cold weather, more do head towards Florida or California. Sharon Vincent said her stepdaughter, who attended Westwood's Christian Academy in Hamden, had run away once before, but was only gone for a few hours. The incident involved a custody dispute between Doreen's natural father, Mark, and her natural mother, Donna Jones of Waterbury. Sharon Vincent described Doreen as a friendly and intelligent girl who considered herself independent. I think she thought she could take care of herself, Sharon Vincent said. But I knew she couldn't. What worries me is I don't think she planned this. I think she did it impulsively. Both Sharon and Mark Vincent stressed that they are not mad at Doreen and just want her to contact them and come home. I just want my daughter back, Mark Vincent said. I want to tell her not to be afraid, Sharon Vincent said. We want to hear from her and we want her to come home. This is the very first media report on Doreen Vincent's disappearance, and thereby, it's the report that sets the tone for the public's knowledge of the case. One striking thing that I want to point out about this article, Doreen's mother Donna is not quoted once. Her stepmother Sharon is quoted five times. So the next article is from the next day, June 29th, 1988. The copy that I have does not say the reporter's name, but we can deduce that this was written by Ralph Tomaselli. Girl still missing, police say. A new lead on the whereabouts of a 12-year-old missing Wallingford girl proved fruitless for police Monday. A girl who fit Doreen Vincent's description was located at a fast food restaurant on Washington Avenue in North Haven. Police spokesman Thomas J. Curran said a former state trooper who lives in North Haven thought he spotted Doreen in a McDonald's restaurant Tuesday morning and called the Wallingford Police Department. Curran and Detective Peter Cameron responded and found only a girl that fit Doreen's description, Curran said. While the phone call was the only one police received Tuesday concerning the missing girl, Curran said he doesn't think it will be the last. I feel confident the public will continue to respond to our request for help, Curran said. We think the public can be very helpful in a case like this. 
Doreen, who is 5 feet 4 inches tall with brunette hair and hazel eyes, has been missing since June 15th, when she left her Whirlwind Hill Road home wearing shorts, a waist-length denim jacket, and white and purple Reebok athletic shoes, and carrying about $50 in cash, police said. Family members believe she may have headed for the Bridgeport area, where she lived until recently. The Wallingford Police Department has checked with friends in the area, but has failed to find anyone who has seen or heard from Doreen. The police have just about run out of leads and are hoping someone who has seen Doreen recently will provide them with some new information that will help them locate her, Curran said. Now keep in your mind something that this article said. She left her Whirlwind Hill Road home wearing shorts, a waist-length denim jacket, and white and purple Reeboks. I want you to remember those items, because they are going to come up again. Now, the next article is dated July 19, 1988, a little over a month after the disappearance. Family offers reward to find missing daughter. The family of the 12-year-old Wallingford girl who has been missing since June 15th is offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to her whereabouts. Donna Jones of Waterbury, the natural mother of Doreen Vincent, said Monday the family is offering the reward in the hopes that someone will come forward with some new information concerning her daughter's disappearance. The police are working on a few things, but they have just about run out of leads, Jones said. Anyone with any information concerning Doreen's whereabouts is being urged to contact the Wallingford Police Department. Doreen disappeared from her Whirlwind Hill Road home, where she lived with her stepmother Sharon Vincent and her natural father Mark Vincent sometime during the evening of June 15th. Police at first suspected Doreen may have fled to the Bridgeport, Norwalk area, where she lived for several years before moving to Wallingford in early June. So we have the first quote from Donna, Doreen's mother. And it was in regards to a $5,000 reward being offered for information to help find Doreen. Surprisingly, there are no more articles, at least none that I've found, in the immediate time frame after June 15th of that year. The next article from the Record Journal is from 1994, and I'll have that for you up next. This is Sarah Dimio, host of the podcast Faded Out, and I just wanted to take this moment to invite you to contribute to Faded Out on Patreon. I created Faded Out just about a year ago because I was heavily interested in the Johnny Gosh case out of West Des Moines, Iowa. This podcast was created as a way to help. And I feel that we're doing that, and certainly now with Doreen Vincent's case, because Doreen is not like Johnny. A lot of people have heard of Johnny Gosh. It's a very well-publicized case. That's not the case with Doreen Vincent. Hardly anybody has heard of her, and that's talking about people right here in Connecticut. So you can help us tell her story by contributing on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. Thank you. The next article from the Record Journal is dated October 13, 1994, and the reporter is John Pettit. Family hopes mailing brings daughter back. Wallingford. Doreen Jane Vincent was 12 years old when she was reported missing in June 1988. Now her family hopes a computer-enhanced photograph will lead to new clues in her whereabouts. 
The picture, along with Vincent's vital statistics, will be featured on direct mail cards distributed by Advo Incorporated of Windsor. The cards will be mailed to more than 53 million households nationwide, including 760,000 in the state, and will accompany a package of retail coupons. If anything is going to work, this might, said Donna Jones, Vincent's mother. If nothing else, it will assist. I think about my daughter every day, and it's really depressing. She was your typical 12-year-old. She liked looking at magazines and wearing makeup. She seemed to be happy. Doreen Vincent disappeared from her Whirlwind Hill Road home sometime during the evening of June 15, 1988. She was living with her stepmother, Sharon Vincent, and her father, Mark Vincent, at the time. Police first suspected Doreen may have fled to the Bridgeport, Norwalk area, where she lived for several years before moving to Wallingford in early June 1988. She was never found, and the search has continued. Wallingford Police Detective Robert Fliss said in a release issued by ADVO that the Vincent case is not closed. There were absolutely no leads and no sightings for a long time, he said. Leads still come up sporadically, including early this summer. This is still a very open case. Mark and Sharon Vincent have since moved and were unavailable for comment. Mona Davis, director of public relations for ADVO, said the company receives names and pictures of missing children from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Arlington, Virginia. ADVO runs a different picture of a child every week, she said. About one in every seven children featured by ADVO has been found, Davis said. More than 65 children have been reunited with their families since the program started in May 1985. When the ADVO staff learns that a child has been found, it's a blessing, Davis says. The whole company sort of stops and takes a breath. In the normal course of business, we've done something that has improved the life of a child. Rose Murad, Doreen's great-aunt, is counting on the cards. I hope this will work, she said. I'm certain this will get the word out. I think it's going to connect somehow. I'm hoping she's still alive. I remember these direct mail cards back in the mid-90s. I can remember being about 10 years old, and something I would always do when I got home from school and other activities was grab the mail from the mailbox before going inside the house. And on an almost daily basis, there would be one of these cards featuring the pictures of a missing person, usually a child, alongside an age-enhanced picture. I very likely could have seen Doreen's picture in 1994 and just have no memory of it as could many others who lived in Connecticut and various other parts of the country at the time. I have a few more articles from the Record Journal, but I'm going to hold off on reading them for now. I'll share the later articles in an upcoming episode. In a prior meeting that I had with my executive producer, Joe Aguirre, we were able to find out what house it was that Doreen disappeared from. So with that new piece of information, I took another drive up Whirlwind Hill Road. This was just about two weeks after the first trip that I took up there, which I shared with you in the last episode. I also learned the name of the reservoir, which I had to cross over, Mackenzie Reservoir, also known as Pine River Reservoir, with a surface area of 48.3 acres. All right, so we're coming up on the reservoir again now. And I'm going to turn right onto Whirlwind Hill Road in a second. Yep, there's the sign that said Mackenzie Reservoir. Didn't see that the first time. Take the next right onto Whirlwind Hill Road. Okay. All right. Getting closer. Is that it? That house? Okay. Okay, so I wish there was a place I could pull over just to 
kind of look at this house a little bit, but I don't think there is. Um, it's not really, there's not really a shoulder to pull off to. All right, so it's not all the way up, but you remember how I mentioned my first time up here that when I turned onto Whirlwind Hill Road, there was a silo immediately on my right, and then I drove a little bit, and then I said there was a silo on my left. Well, the house is between the two silos. There were some people in the yard. They looked like they were working uh, because this is all farmland. All right, so I'm at the end of the street now, at the top of the hill. So to me, it makes a little more sense that Doreen would have not walked the direction that we were going, not walked up the hill. It makes more sense to me that she would have walked down the hill past the reservoir distance-wise. And so that's what I have to assume that she did if the story is correct that she took off on her own that night. I will not share exactly which house it was, but I will say that the more times that I've driven that road, it did fill me with a very eerie, very sad sort of a feeling. The setting did look very similar to the first time I drove up there. Now, in keeping with the idea that Doreen walked out of the house that night of June 15th and started walking in either direction, let's envision what was going through her mind in that scenario. If I'm a 12-year-old kid in 1988, and I'm taking off because I just had a fight with my dad and he pushed me into a window. I'm probably not thinking. I'm likely just in flight mode. But I can't just walk forever. I'm either going to flag down a car to take me somewhere, or I'm going to keep walking until I get to a brightly lit area, a public place that I can duck into, even if it's only to get my thoughts in order. So with that in mind, I want to direct your attention back to someone I mentioned in the last episode, and that is the serial killer. Haddon Clark, who was originally from Meriden, the neighboring town to Wallingford. I'd like to share with you now an article from the Hartford Current about Haddon Clark, dated April 15th, 2001. The reporter is Dave Altamari. The article also describes Castle Craig. Castle Craig is a lookout tower located in Hubbard Park in Meriden. It was dedicated in 1900. It stands on the east peak of Hanging Hills. And if you ever drive on Interstate 691 in Connecticut, you can clearly see it from a distance up on that hill as you approach the area. A man's alter ego confesses, but police still unconvinced, frustrated. At the base of Castle Craig in Meriden, one of the state's most recognizable attractions could lie the gruesome secret of a serial killer. I buried one girl by the rocks in front of the castle, Haddon Clark said in a late night phone interview from a Maryland prison where he is serving a life sentence. When I lived in Meriden, you could go up to the castle anytime you wanted to, Clark said. I used to go up there at midnight and walk around. Actually, it wasn't Clark talking, but his alter ego, Kristen Bluefin. Under the persona of Bluefin, Clark has confessed to a fellow inmate who Clark believes is Jesus Christ that he killed at least a dozen women or girls. Police from Maryland to Vermont have spent years chasing down Clark's gruesome tales of murder and cannibalism, trying to find bodies he says are hidden in graveyards and remote wooded areas all over the Northeast. 
the hard-to-crack nature of child abduction cases, in which witnesses and forensic evidence are usually scarce, is painfully clear in the Clark case. With other leads dried up, detectives have been reduced to chauffeuring the suspected serial killer around to various sites he talks about, hoping for a break in some unsolved case. That's why police are willing to go to a department store and buy women's underwear for Clark to put on, so that his alter ego, Bluefin, will emerge and tell them where bodies are buried. So far, Clark has led authorities to two bodies in Maryland, those of six-year-old Michelle Dorr and 23-year-old Laura Hotling. He is serving a life sentence in Maryland for those murders. But Clark claims he has killed many more children, including nine-year-old Sarah Pryor, who disappeared from Wayland, Massachusetts in 1985. Some law enforcement authorities believe Clark is telling the truth when he says he killed Sarah and buried her in a cemetery on Cape Cod. I would be surprised if they, Dor and Totling, were his only two victims, said Massachusetts State Police Detective James Plath who has walked the cemetery several times with Clark. It's frustrating because after all the time and energy you put into this, if there is something out there, you want to find it. But Wayland police have dismissed Clark's claims and are focusing on another suspect in a Texas jail. The confusion has left Sarah's grieving family frustrated. I've wondered myself if police are discounting this guy because of how weird he is, said Andrew Pryor, Sarah's father. You have to trust that the police know what they are doing. Clark has been keeping detectives in Connecticut busy as well. With chilling calm during a 2 a.m. phone call with a reporter, Clark described how two other girls came to be buried in Meriden. The first little girl was abducted in New York in the early 1970s, when, Clark said, he was on his way home to Meriden after attending classes at the Culinary Institute of Arts in Hyde Park, New York. Clark said he buried her near some pine trees in a cemetery near his grandfather's home on Yale Avenue. When state police brought Clark to Meriden last summer to tour the cemetery, there were no pine trees and the search turned up nothing. State police later learned that the pine trees had been cut down years before. Clark said that the second girl was abducted in front of a bowling alley in Wallingford several years later, although he isn't sure when. She's buried amidst the rocks in front of Castle Craig, he said, although searches of the area have been fruitless. State police believe that girl could be Doreen Vincent, a 12-year-old missing since 1988 from Wallingford. Local police are just as convinced Clark had nothing to do with her disappearance. Either way, frustrated police have no plans to bring Clark back to New England to search for bodies. I don't think there's more we can do now, short of excavating half of the national seashore, Plath said. At some point, you have to draw the line. There's a lot to unpack in that article, but mainly Haddon Clark's own claim that he abducted a girl from a bowling alley in Wallingford killed her, and buried her in the rocks in front of Castle Craig. State police went so far as to say they believe that girl could be Doreen. Local police, not so much. They think Haddon Clark had nothing to do with Doreen. Clark himself couldn't put a date on when this supposedly happened, and the searches that were done came up with nothing. The scenario itself is not impossible. Is it plausible that if Doreen had been walking for a while, she could have come up on a bowling alley and ducked inside? In my next episode, Jessica Fritz-Aguire and I are going to delve into Haddon Clark and each theory that connects him to Doreen Vincent.
Until then, if you would like to get in touch with us, please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out for more in-depth conversation about the case. We are also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. You can also reach out to us directly at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. And please also follow my weekly blog by joining us on Patreon. Thank you for joining me for episode two of season two. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me, Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre, produced by Joe Aguirre and Jason Pinette of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>